don't know what you're up to. But I'm going to tell you it's going to stop right now. No, it's not going to stop. It's going to go on and on until you face up to your responsibilities. What responsibilities? I'm pregnant. I'm going to have our child. Alex, that's your choice. I have nothing to do with me. I just want to be a part of your life. Oh, this is the way you do it, huh? Showing up at my apartments? What am I supposed to do? You won't answer my calls. You change your number. I mean, I'm not going to be ignored, Dan. Re-re-re-reboot. Which one will it be? It's the Ruined Childhood Podcast. Greetings, Starfighters. How's it going? It's Why time. the dramatic pause? Why was there such a long pause there? Uh, Were you waiting for them to respond to you? I, you know, I think I was, uh, you know, hey, after three years, you know, at some point, you know, you, you need to hear some, you need to hear a voice shouting back from the void. All right. <laughs> uh, it's, oh boy. It's time for a, it's time for an episode of Rune Childhoods. And I'm Dan. I'm a host of the show. And, uh, my brother, John is the other host. Say hey, hi, Dan. Hey, John. Hi, how's it going? Hi. Oh. oh, Dan, Dan, Dan. It you is know. our first episode of the new year. Oh, yes, yes. And it's aren't the we most, excited? It's the most sexy and thrilling time of the year. I, I just Michael have Douglas to say, my, my, my one dog, my, my youngest dog, Rufio, has decided that now is the perfect time to be like, hey, let's play. Let's go do stuff. Oh, okay. So that's what I hear. Pause on floor. Yeah, I thought you had like something dancing. in the dryer. Oh, let's have. Oh dancing. no, not. I wouldn't dare start laundry when we were doing this. I turned off my heat for this. Oh, you know what? I mean, I've been there, done that. Yeah. So I appreciate so it. The little guy's gonna have to stay on my lap for a bit. And I hope, even though no nobody responded to the greeting, starfighters, that you all also appreciate that John has turned off his heat. Uh, for this recording, are you now? It does not look like you're in the shack. I'm not in the shack. I am in my house proper and uh, living it up. And um, yeah, I've I've created a in the house uh, recording area for myself. And so I uh, and so here we are, ready to party. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. it means that the dogs are also ready to party. But um, yeah, also hopefully I'm hoping that it creates a better environment for better sound, but uh, I'm also using a different microphone. So that just creates a whole other level of uh, of chaos, but that's okay. This is not the show where we talk about chaos. This is the show where we talk about uh, Glenn Close We're <laughs> being obsessed well, with, with Michael well, Douglas. I mean, yeah, a chaos of a different nature here. Uh, with with fatal with fatal attraction, but um, you know, but first, uh, I, I I've heard there's some news and notes that you got some news and notes for us. Oh yeah, well, uh, I noticed that there was a couple of things that were, I guess, a little bit relevant to uh some of the stuff that we've been talking about. Uh, one of the things is something that I saw on Deadline, and uh, it has to do with a sequel to the Ridley Scott film Gladiator. 
Ah, yes. Uh, yes, Dan, have you been seeing seeing this? I saw something about it. I saw some casting and that yes. it was uh, Paul Mescal from Normal People. And Ridley Scott, I believe, is 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 back. And and apparently uh the actor is playing the uh I guess the the son of the, the well, like Joaquin Phoenix's sister, Connie Nielsen played the, right, the character. Right, right. I forget the character's name. Um, but like she had the son who like really looked up to Maximus. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we'll see. Uh, John, I don't know if we've ever talked about Gladiator. Are you a uh, you a fan of that film? You know, I I put it on recently, and it was a. Um, it was kind of like a, you know I haven't watched this in a while. The there are certainly parts that I remember really enjoying, but um, uh, it didn't grab my attention the way that I remembered it grabbing my attention, you know, twenty years ago. But yeah, no, uh, I just want to kind of read a little bit from the the deadline article, uh, and and yes, uh, Mescal won't be replacing Crow's Maximus, whose character met his end in the original film. Spoilers, but instead he'll be playing Lucius, the son of Lucilla. Uh, or yes. Lucia uh, Connie Nielsen, who is now a grown man as the story takes place years after the first film ended. Uh, also, the nephew of uh, Joaquin Phoenix's character and son of Marcus Aurelius, blah, 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 blah. Maximus saved the boy and his mother while avenging his own family with a strong impression on the young Lucius. So uh, I'm interested. I'm interested enough. It's been a while yeah. since we've had a movie like that. Yeah, yeah. I you know a mainstream movie. I'm sure there's been plenty of other movies that have been similar. I feel like maybe like 300 was the last one that really but even made that an was, impact. Right, but uh, that was 300 was seven or something. Yeah, it was like so. I guess much closer to the time of Gladiator than it is to the time right, now. <laughs> right, yeah. right. But uh, yeah, you know, Gladiator is a fun like popcorn movie, and it was like you know cool to see in the theater. Uh, and it, it, it's a fun movie and it's, it's one that maybe I put on once every few years. I have the Blu-ray you know, kicking it, around it somewhere. gave us, it gave us the line, are you not entertained? We have the whole thumbs up, thumbs down situation. Right. Uh, that's right. fun. Well, I, yeah. I mean, and like, you know, the performances in it, I think are great. I think Russell Crowe's great in it. Not best actor. Great. No. Uh, I, but Joaquin also, Phoenix is great. I, I think that it was like more of the introduction of Joaquin Phoenix as more of an adult actor because prior to that he had been more like well, of course, child as Leaf Phoenix, but then was doing more like teenage well, roles and like you know like clay young pigeons adult roles. Yeah, like the like you know playing playing like you know y- young renegades and like clay Clay pigeons was one but also uh the other movie while we're on this and we're all we're on the topic of uh joaquin phoenix in the in 2000 the movie that i saw that i remember he really his performance really blew me away in this movie was quills the film oh, about okay. the, yeah, Marquis de Sade with Jeffrey Rush, who's amazing in it, uh-huh. and um, uh, Kate Wins. I think it's Kate Winslet who's who's in it, and Joaquin Phoenix. And I remember really being impressed. Like I I liked him in Gladiator. I thought he was great. I thought he was fun. Like he really just like you know got the meat of that role. Yeah, but uh, 
I thought his performance in Quills was like stu- was really to me that was the oh all right nice. Well, I mean, I Gary, that he was, no more. He was, yeah. I mean, he was great in his works with M Night Shyamalan, and he, uh, I mean, swing stood away, out Meryl. In, but he and he and he stood out in To Die For. Um, yes, yes, you know, you really have some incredible performances, and uh, you know, if if nothing else, there were certainly hints that you know this kid had something, you know, that he wasn't just a child actor. No. Yeah. No. Um, yeah. yeah. So, and then the other thing that I saw was on Slash Film, and uh, I I don't know how much this has come up in the in the past in interviews, but uh, allegedly um, Ocean's Twelve was uh, it it almost starred two people that we had talked about <laughs> being very close to uh, the Ocean's Eleven uh, franchise in spirit. Uh, Paul Newman and Robert Redford, the George Clooney and Brad Pitt of their time. And so uh, the article from January 9th said Ocean's 12 could have starred Paul Newman and Robert Redford. Uh, And, you know, we were talking about this during The Sting, about how, you know, the Ocean's movies are kind of like in the same spirit of The Sting. And yeah. um, the 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 quote is: "Those guys obviously could have easily be fought, been fathers to Clooney and Pitt." And I uh, I think that there was a I guess on the script apart podcast, um, Ted Griffin, who was the uh, original writer for Ocean's Twelve, uh, George Nolfi was the one that actually came on to write it. Uh, but Ted Griffin said that he looked back to early ideas for the sequel and remembered the notion of making uh, this the third collaboration between Paul Newman and Robert Redford. And the quote is, uh, it was actually more of an idea for a trailer, which was you had George and Brad having an espresso in some square in Europe and having a conversation similar to the one they have at Musso and Frank's. Like, what do you think? We need one more. And Brad Pitt and Brad puts two fingers up. Two more, George says. What do you have in mind? And Brad points... And you see, crossing the square towards them, Paul Newman and Robert Redford. So, uh, yeah, you know, I wow. it, to to imagine that we would be the only people to think of that type of <laughs> uh, Ocean's movie collaboration, it would be foolish. Well, and also, I think it was. I think also with sneakers, it was it was very much in that vein as yeah. you know, in that same vein. So there. Uh, it it yeah it just makes sense uh yeah that's a that's man that would have been awesome oh i would have popped like a maniac if i saw that <laughs> uh speaking of maniacs do you want to get into the uh the main event here oh wow well i yeah okay there we go <laughs> do you want me to do it differently because i can no I have some fate Dan, I have some other news. Did you know that uh, along with the new year, 2023, uh, comes the uh, the Chinese New Year, and 2023 is the year of the rabbit. <laughs> so, uh, if That's that doesn't a... if that doesn't bring us into fatal attraction, I don't know what can. We're boiling. Let's go. <laughs> and I'll have you know, uh, 1987 was also the year of the rabbit when Fatal Attraction came out, and so. Here we are, Fatal Attraction. Uh, two years ago, Dan and I covered the Michael Douglas 
thriller the game last year we just we covered um basic uh, basic instinct and then dan came to realize hey we covered two michael douglas thrillers first of the year uh let's keep it up so here we are covering fatal attraction and i'm really excited dan this is my first time seeing it okay Wow. Um, first of all, I just for everyone who is excited at this idea of the first episode of the year being devoted to a Michael Douglas thriller, uh, there's a long list. I've got us kind of booked out a few years. So oh, yeah. I, it's it's really I mean, you know, they're not all erotic thrillers. I feel like they don't, but the game isn't an erotic thriller. They no, don't have to be a, but, no, yeah. no, 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 no. But it, like Basic Instinct being our last one and Fatal Attraction, these two are often very linked also because there's the whole idea of, of uh you know psychology and uh mental Abs- illness yeah absolutely but- I, I mean th- i think that also it's like we couldn't go another year without talking about fatal attraction i mean well it's an iconic no. film uh that has certainly deserved its cult status it uh it was from the second it came out was divisive and you know worthy of conversation and, and a lot of protest and i'm really looking forward to talking a little bit more about not just the movie but also its director adrian line who i uh, i think just accidentally made a great movie despite himself uh he doesn't <laughs> seem to realize what makes his movies so good uh, <laughs> well, uh, at least based on the the commentary and the interviews I've heard, and uh, his his responses to to questions about the film and its controversies, and and I guess before you launch into a synopsis, uh, I you know in, in thinking about what makes it so good, and like we're gonna have a conversation about this movie. Uh, because this is my I, probably second time, I think second time seeing it. And the first time I saw it was probably like as young as I would have been to see a movie like this. So probably not like not on d- definitely not in the theater. I remember yeah. it being in the theater and I remember like all like the adults, like everyone's parents saw Fatal Attraction I have somehow have a re- memory of it being on the marquee at the Blue Star Cinema and watching oh, okay. R.I.P. And um, but I, I don't know. Maybe I was like 12, 13, 14 when I when I saw it and, you know, watched it and was just like, all right. Uh, clearly, when you know, when you're an adult. <laughs> Oh yeah, when it's, when you're an adult, when you are a parent, when you are a spouse, uh-huh. uh, you know it definitely has a very different message. Well, um, and when it's and, and also sorry to interrupt. Uh, yeah. Also, when it's thirty five years later, totally. But yeah. to, but to to just go back to what does make this movie seem so good, and I don't know if this is necessarily something that we'll come back to in our discussion, so I'll say it now. It is a masterclass in cinematography and editing. I'd say cinematography, editing, uh, scoring. Score, score, uh, yeah. And and also yeah. Um, set direction, uh, set design. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, yes. I would definitely argue for set design as well. Uh, I feel like uh, the set designer on this really made it such a an intentional use of space, uh, a really yes. thoughtful exploration of the characters and 
how they live, how they exist in this world, and even things down to like, I don't know, the school that the kid goes to or the office mm. that he works in, the way that the hallways are filled and things like that. It, it all just makes sense. The stacks in the library. Yes. It's something that I feel is, it can be done, it tends to be done really well. I think of other movies with New York apartments that really tell you so much about the character, like the Fisher King, um, you know, yeah. going from uh, Jeff Bridges' apartment in the beginning to then the, the apartment he lives in with Mercedes Rule yeah. and even where where Perry lives, Robin Williams. Yeah. Um, I think of that. I think of I think of the office in Wolf. <laughs> oh my the, god, uh, the Wolf! Yeah, uh, that's the is that the Brill Building? Um, I think so. Yeah, something like that. Uh, I mean, anyway, it's just it's another one of these movies, and and of course, like he who shall not be named, but a comedy director whose most of his movies are set in in New York. Oh yeah, um, but he's a fucking monster. So. Um, in those movies, again, apart the, those apartments, and uh, like, yes, it's it's done in other movies in other cities. Ryan Gosling's apartment and Drive, I think, is such yeah. is so establishing of his character uh, before you even really meet him. But uh, these New York apartments just seem so uh, like they have so much character and they add so much to these characters. But speaking of the characters, John. I think a synopsis is the logical next step. A synopsis is a logical two steps ago, probably. All yes. right, but here we go. Dan Gallagher, he's got it all. A gorgeous dog, a supportive wife, and a precocious bunny-loving daughter. But when he becomes involved in an adulterous weekend with a wild temptress named Alex, Dan's life becomes very complicated. During their tryst, Alex becomes obsessive and bitter about Dan's marriage and home life. But things get even more complicated after she tells him that their rendezvous has resulted in a pregnancy that she intends to maintain. Dan and his family move out of the burbs, but Alex still manages to increase her fixation on a life with Dan until he comes to the hard truth that he must tell his wife Beth about the affair and pregnancy. But not only does Dan get kicked out of the house, Alex doubles down and kidnaps his daughter for a jaunt to the amusement park. While scouring the streets for little Ellen, Beth ultimately crashes her car and ends up in the hospital, resulting in Dan having to absolutely eat shit to her parents in their room. But this is the last straw for Dan, who confronts Alex face to face, nearly killing her. She may have his attention now, but how far either of them is willing to take it could turn a simple weekend of infidelity into a bloodbath. And I will not spoil the ending, but did I? Did you? I, you know, uh, a, a film that famously has uh, alternate endings. Okay. Yeah. Well, fair enough. I think that, uh, okay, we, we're going to spoil the ending. If you don't want to hear it, skip ahead about a minute. But uh, ultimately what happens is it uh, goes back to the house and the burbs. Uh, Dan thinks that he's finally gotten the message across to Alex and uh, such is not the case. She arrives at their house with a knife uh, that Dan nearly stabbed her with at the apartment, killing her, but res but restrained himself and starts getting really crazy and attempts to kill <laughs> Beth. Starts getting really crazy. Well, come on. Uh, but, you know, uh, attempts to kill Alex. Uh, Dan 
finds them in a in a struggle and attempts to drown her in the bathtub. Uh, that is not enough to kill Alex. So Beth shoots her dead. Yes. Um, which I do remember. I, I feel like I remember hearing about that being such a huge jump scare in the theater when she like sits up in the bathtub. It's wild. It is. This movie is bad shit. But um, a, a cup, couple of notes here, uh, casting notes. I realized I was like, wow, Ann Archer really got kind of got typecast there as the like suffering wife of an obsessive man. And she ends up getting into a life threatening car crash <laughs> because of it. Because I I mean, the other I would say her other biggest role uh, outside of Fatal Attraction was the um, Kathy Ryan in uh, Patriot Games and Clear and Present right. Danger in Patriot Games. Car, same, like, you know, car yeah. accidents. It's Irish terrorists this time around. Yeah. You know, uh, and Ann Archer, who was nominated for uh, Best Supporting Actress for this, um, was excellent. She was amazing. And I... It's oh we're we we're not the first persons to say this, but like first persons, first people to say this. It's been a long day. First people to say this, but like I, uh, it's she's almost so amazing and and perfect as a partner for Dan that it's just like what in the world is he thinking? And it I I think that it's it it works in its favor so much that it's just like this is the dumbest man on the planet. Uh, he let his impulses take control over him and uh -huh. completely screwed up his entire life and didn't even realize how much until <laughs> things started to unfold. And he is and, and here's where Michael Douglas it, as a leading man is so he's he's the antithesis of a leading man in so many ways, because he embraces these roles that he's not, I was watching. I was like, I was like, wow, he's, he's really shitty. And like, I, I don't, we're not supposed to like him. And I, you think about his roles in, uh, in the game in like, you sympathize with him in the game, uh, but yeah. he's not, he's not a likable person really. <laughs> And in this, he's just, I, but that's the thing is he's so like, and it sets him up that way. I, it's something I like about the movie is it sets it up that so where it's like, you know, other than like boredom or, or something like he's just so like boredom and selfishness. Like he has this great, like you said, like she's so good for him. And yeah, and, and that's what makes it even worse that he does what he does. Yeah. Uh, and I think that, you know, thinking about like basic instinct, he is a very unlikable person. Whereas uh, in Fatal Attraction, everything is set up to make him seem like such a great guy. You know, the movie starts off and yes, he's working at home. Um, and yes, his daughter is watching TV next to him, but, you know, he's still an active participant in his daughter's life. And he's, yeah. you know, uh, he's very present in her life in a lot of different ways. And uh, he's uh, actually charming and he's actually fun and he's 
you know, his friends like him. And he presents as a really likable person. And he makes this gigantic mistake. Um, and I think that, and this is kind of going into Adrian Lyne's uh, vision of the movie versus what I think he actually ended up doing is that uh, according to what Adrian Lyne says, like in the commentary, I believe that he thinks that every man wants to have an affair. Like, I think that for him, it's just like, oh, yeah, everybody does it. But you just got to not get caught. And I think that the way that um, it actually really plays out is just like, this person seems so great. And uh, deep down, he's not. He is really a dirtbag. And he is just clearly thinking very selfishly and uh, doesn't care about the consequences. And it's like, maybe he is getting swept away in the, you know, his budding career. It's like, he's on the verge of becoming partner. Uh, I imagine there's a Fred Gwynn scene or two that got cut that uh, goes into it. We got uh, ripped off on Fred Gwynn there. I feel like he deserved a lot more. But it's just like, you know, maybe it's like his ego is getting ahead of him. and, And that's the reason why he falls for this this woman's advances and doesn't at all do anything at all to say no right and he i the fact that he it's not just one night right well it's not one night because she manipulates him into right. staying the second night and right. Yes, and and by by using this information that he told her about how he was so upset when watching uh, Madame Butterfly with his father that he got so physically upset that he had to like hide under the seat, and it was right. a moment where he was really telling her about this, you know, this time that he had uh, of connection with his father, but she took that information and kind of filed it away as like, this is how I can manipulate him. He is upset by the part in Madame Butterfly where she kills herself. And so I'm going to use that in order to bring him further into my uh, seduction, essentially. And so he's about to leave. She slits her wrists and plays him like a fiddle. I mean, because there is part of him that is this good guy that he you know can't imagine leaving her and she knows that yeah i can't imagine leaving her to just die in her apartment and uh it's it's so uh, incredible the way that glenn close plays it off and i think that the direction is really brilliant the way that it kind of reveals that she's you know done this to herself and it kind of it leaves it up to the audience to put the pieces together as to like why she's doing that and what exactly the purpose is. It's like there wasn't, she didn't just do that to do it. She did it because she knew that it was going to benefit her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Something, uh, something else I, I, I really uh, appreciated about this movie 
and uh, this ties into you know the the editing and everything. It's it's that use of the telephone as like it's oh the extension as the extension of Alex, and I love how I love how they set it up and how you know it it, it embraces these like tropes of the genre, but really does them to perfection. Yeah, I and mean the in phone the, in the very it, first scene. You know, the the phone rings and, and he, you know, picks it up. It's, you know, his uh, his work friend's wife and, you know, right. it's this whole thing. But, like, every time that phone rings, it means something else and then it just gets more and more intense well and then i mean it becomes alex and and they they do it where it's like you know and it's like the phone phone ringing but like the time when uh uh when when his friends are over and it, yeah. interesting side note about the friends uh so uh his his work friend is played by stuart pankin who's great who, in addition to like you know being a you know co- comedic character in in a lot of 80s movies was part of not necessarily the news which was like an early HBO original programming like yeah. news parody um and his wife is played by Ellen Foley who was on Night Court for a while speaking yeah. of reboots cuz that's happening uh but Ellen Foley was on Night Court and also is the vocalist who sang opposite Meatloaf on Paradise by the Dashboard Light. That's right. Anywho, <laughs> when the phone rings and Ann Archer goes, uh, you know, and picks it up and, you know, Alex doesn't say anything, I think, on, on that no. call. Um, But like after that, you just, you know, it's going to be her. And like it, for like, there's like three times in a row where the phone rings and it's, it's her and you know, it's her. And then they start to like tease you with it a little bit. And it's like, uh, and they use like the same, like the, like the camera panning over slowly, but, oh, it's not, it's not her. It's, I don't, it's somebody else. It's Stuart Pankin. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, when they move into the the house out in the burbs or whatever, they, you know, they really, they really tease that hard, you know, and Michael Douglas like rushes to the phone before Beth can get to it. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's extremely well done. I was, I was really caught up in it. It was so exciting and it was so um, mysterious. I mean, not having seen it, I was just like, oh my God, what is she going to do next? And when, uh, like, at the very beginning, you know, I see this great dog, this, like, yellow lab, and I'm like, oh, no, this poor dog is good. Like, something bad is going to happen. And uh, the worst thing that happens to the dog is that, you know, he doesn't come home to walk it overnight or something. But uh, yeah, then the, the, um, the really unfortunate thing that does happen is after he gets his daughter Ellen, this bunny rabbit, uh, uh, lo and behold, Alex gets the rabbit, breaks into their house, and boils it on the stove. And the editing, yeah. the editing in this scene when they find it, that's one of those where I just was like, I was watching it and really just thinking about, man, the, the editing yeah. is... Uh, is just so magnificent in building this tension between you know, Michael Douglas out there with with uh, the daughter 
and yeah. seeing that that the rabbit's gone and Ann Archer walking into the kitchen, you see the boiling pot, and then and I imagine if it's your first time seeing it, especially, yeah, it's it's a real moment. I mean, like you know what's going to happen. You're just like, oh my god, what are they going to show here? I know what's I know what's happening. What is it? Um, you know, because you know that it's not going to be at that point like a red herring where it's going to be like, oh no, nope, it just got out of its cage and. They, I don't know, left the pot on. I don't, I don't know, something right. like that. Uh, but what's, you know, I I think that there's a lot of really great threads that this movie has that, uh, you know, in addition to like the telephone, there also is something to boiling water in a lot of different ways. I mean, uh, at the beginning, Alex makes uh dan spaghetti uh right. when they're over there uh meaning that he ends up giving the spaghetti that uh beth made for him for the dog uh and then there's so many different moments of like making tea uh and boiling water for that well, and just in water water in general if you think well, about yeah. the water when when they're having sex like you know in the sink and she's like turning the water on and everything the bathtub yeah uh like, and what an yeah, incredible <laughs> and yeah, what an incredible scene too. Their you know their first encounter together is just so different from what you typically see, and it's just like wow, these two are just like really getting raw, and it's just like uh, there's there's nothing delicate about it. There is nothing nope. that is like it doesn't feel like it exists in this world, but it's almost just like, wow, can you imagine what it must be like to like, just forget everything and just start banging on a sink filled with dishes, well, by the way, in, that must have the stunk a- <laughs> <laughs> like spaghettis. Um, I, I think in the Adrian line cinematic universe, this, this does happen frequently. Uh, I, I've never seen nine and a half weeks uh-huh. and it's been a long time since I've seen Flashdance, but I feel like, uh, this is not, uh, I feel like not that, I mean, indecent proposal, I think seems tame compared to, yeah. compared to this, but yeah, no, 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 they are, they are, there is no making love about it those two are fucking no yeah absolutely and that's and they managed to do it in a way and by they i mean like adrian line and like michael douglas and glenn close but they do it in a way also where it's like there's these elements of humor to it where it just like it kind of as an audience member gives you this moment to i don't know kind of wrestle with yourself about like am i allowed to enjoy this like, am yeah. I allowed to to smile at this and laugh at this? I mean, first of all, the movie's called Fatal Attraction. You know that something bad is going to happen. But also, it's just like, the you know, the guy is cheating on his incredible wife and, you know, betraying his daughter. And, you know, it's like all these things. And, um, yeah, and it's and you're really as an, as an audience member. Oh, my God. These dogs, they're driving me crazy. They must. I'm sitting in a completely different place in my house, and they must uh, just be like, "What is he doing? Oh my! Can you get a load of this guy?" What if, What if they're trying to talk about the movie though? What if they're like, "No, but if you look at it from the perspective of uh, no, it's all supposed to be from this perspective," and uh, like, yeah, that, Daisy, the one who's barking be. right now, is just like, "I was also really concerned about the yellow lab." <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I, I think that there is so much about this movie that, like, it really just engages you as an audience member. And I feel like a lot of that also, uh, and this is where, like, the controversy comes in. Because 
I, you know, Alex is this, she's an editor at a publishing house and that's how they meet each other. And so uh, there's a lot of criticism about how it's like, oh, women in business, you know, are, are they've got to be crazy. There's got to be something wrong with them. And mm. uh, there, there was a lot of controversy about that. And to that, I say, yeah, I mean, uh, this could have been done in a very wow. different way that maybe couldn't have like, you know, fanned that kind of flame. Uh, I mean, this is 1987. There's a lot going yeah. on. I mean, you know, if you you've watched movies like, you know, Working Girl with nine to five, you see this very different perspective of, of this. And this almost feels like a, a step back. And um, Adrian Lyon, I think his his perspective is just like, oh, that's absolute rubbish. And it's just like, I don't know, maybe consider the fact that, you know, had she worked in retail or something it might have had a different message uh i think that there's a uh there's something to be said about including women in high-powered positions i mean she was i think still a uh not like a senior editor or anything she was but she had a decent she had a good job at an editing house or publishing house um and as far as we know i don't think that beth has a job um, which could have also changed things. We don't know if um, if if their friend, you know, had a had a job. I'm uh, Jimmy's wife. Uh, yeah, Hildy. Hildy. That's what her Hildy. name is. Hildy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, we don't know what her occupation is, but it would have changed things. I think if she or Beth also had really good jobs. Um, yeah. I just wanted to make sure to talk about that a little bit (laughs) well i mean there's quite a bit and like first like before getting to this movie specifically the adrian line filmography does not suggest a high regard or respect for women women are women are very much sexual objects and if they have some type of power or status that makes them just more desirable and there to be manipulated. I mean, in Indecent Proposal, Robert Redford like rents Demi Moore yeah. from Woody Harrelson. Uh, you've got Lolita. I don't think I need to go on about that one. You've got um I Flashdance. I feel like the uh like the the male character in that, like the love interest is I, I, again, she's, well, that movie she's is all very of, much about the male gaze, and yeah, you know, I mean, think about the iconic moment of that movie is very much like sexualizing. Uh, oh, well, there's more water. Yes, yeah. Oh, water. <laughs> um, yeah, we we love that water in Adrian Line movies. Yeah. So, so anyway, I feel like, um, and I, I, I can't necessarily speak as much for Jacob's Ladder, but that that one, that one seems is like the outlier in his filmography. It's probably why it's my favorite of of his films. Anyway, this movie specifically is so so misogynistic. Uh, the fact that when she tells him she's pregnant, and he's he asked her he says what you don't use anything right yeah and it's like whoa yeah slow slow down i know and um this also begs the question of whether you think she was really pregnant or not 
Right. I wanted to ask you what, what you thought, because in my, like, they don't, the only thing that suggests in it that she's not is at one point she seems to be drinking wine. She's got oh, like her but, little like yeah. snack. Well, yeah, it, it, you could have a glass of wine because um, she's got like all the snacks at that one point that she's, you know, she's got her little platter out. And oh, yeah. There's nothing more to right. suggest that she's not. I think that the fact that she has a pint of Haagen-Dazs, a whole thing of Oreos, Doritos, and wine has nothing to do with like pregnancy cravings or anything. I think oh. that because I think that for Adrian Line, that's just like, oh, this is how women act when their hearts are broken. I think that that's just him being a misogynist. But Oh, you don't think that's him saying this is what women eat when they're pregnant? No, not at all. I, so in the commentary, Adrian Lyne does say he he indicates that, you know, it's not that there's a question of her being pregnant or not. It's like, oh, it's a fact. She said that she's pregnant. It was, you know, the doctor verified it or whatever uh but it's not like it's not like oh you think that she wouldn't use this as like a point of manipulation you don't think that she would have just like found somebody to say like hey call this this person's gonna call you say you're a doctor and say that i'm pregnant like she is all about that manipulation and the only thing that we ever really see is just like a box of pregnancy tests in her in her cabinet but i the timeline makes no sense. Uh, there's no way that within the time between when they had their affair to when she tells him that she's pregnant, that it that she would know. It's do just know not how possible. Much time, but do we, do we know exactly how much time it is? Uh, I'd have to look and see if there's any indications one way or another, but I don't think it's a lot of time. I don't think that it's more than a week or two. Okay. Yeah, no, cuz that I mean that also occurred to me, but it's like usually there's some type of reveal or at least there's the indication of it. Now, I did, you know, a little light research mainly Wikipedia, but um and I don't know if there's anything in this in the commentary, but I mean, I think it's it seems like the one person who would know for sure would be Glenn Close. And uh, yeah, I was doing some reading and it, it looks like after she did some research, decided or, you know, determined that her character had something called erotomania. Right. Which is a like a rare uh, paranoid delusional disorder. The, and so thinking about the pregnancy issue makes me think that it, it could have been possible that Alex was convinced she was pregnant. And that and that could be and that could be true. All, all I'm saying is that uh Adrian Line, I don't think yeah. I considered the idea that maybe she was not actually pregnant. It's just like, oh, she says she is, she is. And that, you know, uh <laughs> for him to believe it means that it raises the stakes. And it's like, you know, that is her way into getting him to do what she wants him to do. And yeah, Jeez, this guy really stumbled into making something that was, I, I know turned out to be a lot more than I know. I was, I watched it, uh, I think two days in a row, the second time with commentary. And I was just like, this guy is such a dunce. How does he not know <laughs> like how 
he made a great movie by accident. Like he doesn't realize that the things that made it great. So, you know, there's this moment where she, as a peace offering, gives him tickets uh, to go with her to Madame Butterfly. And uh, she just thought that it'd be a nice way to kind of bury the hatchet, if you will. And um, he says no. And Adrian Lyon is like, well, it turned out that it was going to be too expensive to actually uh, film at a performance of Madame Butterfly with her there with an empty seat. So it just kind of like did this thing where she's just like sitting, listening to the cassette with the tickets there and kind of flicking the light on and off. Um, hopefully that works. And it's just like, that's so much better that she's just sitting there on the floor, flicking on and off a lamp while this opera is playing. That's intense. Well, and that honestly strikes me as being a Glenn Close choice, like the lamp flicking. Oh, my God. I I mean, it it didn't seem that way, but like it makes sense if it was. It just, I don't know, it reminds me of like the big chill and uh-huh. I think of like Glenn Close and like the like the shower scene and yeah. like there's so much to her physicality and her physical choices even on like the the show Damages uh-huh. uh, which is a lot of fun if you've never seen it uh, but uh, Glenn Close is is in that and you know uh, Dangerous Liaisons her physicality and that her choices are always so precise and they're so grounded in the, the character so I, I mean, there's a lot. I would love to have a, a discussion with Glenn Close oh, about yeah. this. I she did not return my calls <laughs> uh, to join us on the episode, but at some point, love to. Yeah, have so many she, questions. <laughs> she really made it fantastic. Um, you know, kind of going back to the two different endings. Um, I, this is another place where I feel like may you know kind of accidentally did something great where. You know, they they further tied in the water and like the boiling water stuff I was mentioning before. And like they brought these these things up until the very end. And um, in the original ending, they wanted to do something that was like more poetic. And so they had Dan, did you watch the original ending at all? I I remember watching it, and this is why I think I'm, I must have seen this movie once it was on DVD, because I remember seeing the original ending. Mm. Okay. Um, so, so what yeah. ends up happening is this is coming right off of the scene where Michael Douglas goes to her apartment, says like, you know, you messed with my family, you messed with my daughter. You mess with, you kidnap my daughter? Sorry, bub. That's that's it. And I have a very specific set of Yeah, skills. and he comes very close to killing her and he has this knife and he puts it on the table and it kind of shows the knife where it's like you see and you're just like that's not the last we're going to see of that knife. And uh, I it kind of goes to the next day and you know the the Gallagher family is just like raking leaves or whatever and the cops come and it's a lieutenant who he's spoken to a lot previously trying to figure out what to do about this woman. And um, he thinks that, you know, oh, you know, they've they've figured something out for him. And uh, they've come to tell him that she was uh, found uh, dead in her apartment, killed. They ruled out suicide, um, saying that the way that her throat was slit made it seem 
impossible for it to be have been done by somebody. Um, which, first of all, how would they know so quickly? Seriously, I don't know. And so, uh, it's not like there's somebody who goes in to like feed the cats or something. There's just you know she lives by herself. But anyway, uh, so. They are essentially saying like, well, we'd like you to come in and um, they're actually checking the fingerprints on the knife that was used. And as you've seen, his fingerprints would be on it. And so I he essentially just kind of yells out the police car window to Beth, like, go into my uh, address book, call my lawyer or whatever. And inside the address book is this cassette tape that Alex had given to uh, Dan, where she is just going off on a very long rant and uh, and saying like, you know what, I'm going to kill myself. And uh, then what are you going to do? And it's, it's uh, you know, admitting that she was going to be doing these things. And, um, you know, as Beth is listening to it, it's kind of like the way to get him out of jail and clear his name and so it's kind of like an ending that falls flat but they wanted they preferred this ending because it was very poetic because of the madam butterfly of it all and the suicide and (laughs) i you know and and maybe this is also a you know we're 35 years later and we have uh a lot of other movies to kind of look at and uh see you know what other people have done. And it's like doing a, a story like that where she kills herself. It's kind of, it's like, I don't know. It's a little lazy. <laughs> like the, uh, you're making a thriller. I think that the scene that they actually shot, you know, it ties things together so well. And it really is a satisfying ending. Uh, yeah. whereas this one yeah. where it's just like, Oh, okay. So like everything's okay. And, they didn't have to kill her. Okay. <laughs> you know? Uh, so anyway, um, it's like, Oh, all right. So everything kind of works out. Like yeah. she kind of took care of herself and it's all good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, hmm. Mm, no. Yeah. So yeah, no. And the ending that they, that they did, I mean, it's so much more, it, it's the ending that this movie needed and like i'm sure theaters were like to see this in a theater especially like opening weekend must have been quite the experience yeah uh absolutely i I mean having just seen it for the first time and really kind of going in fresh i i feel like i in a little bit of that way like got that experience um (laughs) Granted, this is a very early erotic thriller, and you know we're we're in a place right now where that genre doesn't really exist in the same way, and no. you know we've kind of like seen it all. You know, you know we know Michael Douglas, we know Glenn Close, you know a lot better than than we would have at the time because you know at that time it was still pretty early in Michael Douglas's acting career. Uh, he had been a producer, you know, he produced Cuckoo's Nest and he did like some acting, but well, I, 
I mean, by this point, he had done uh, the Romancing the Stone, right. Jewel of the Nile. Right. And those were uh, real. China Syndrome. Yeah, but those were all real gambles from the studios. Like, he wasn't the sure thing. Well, right. Yeah. No, but also, this was this was also the same year Wall Street right. came out. Well, like, he I was think filming they came them, out within a month. He was filming them at the exact right. same time. That makes sense. I mean, yeah. you're. it's like, what, you hop on the train? Well, but also, it just goes to show, you know, the the chops of, of an actor to kind of be able to do that, to to go from one day to the next being different people uh, who have yeah. completely different vibes. I mean, I think that if he was doing Wall Street and Basic Instinct at the same time, uh, I would maybe be like, yeah, okay, well, he's, you know, got some of those similar vibes, you know, not exactly the same, but in this one, he's very much, I mean, yes, he did something terribly wrong, but he is also a victim. Uh, I think that in, um, you know, Basic Instinct, he is very much an, an aggressor. Uh, oh, yeah. and, in, and in Wall Street, he is very much also an aggressor. And as as someone who kind of like, you know, I, I love the Academy Awards, but like particularly this era of Academy Awards. So the fact that like, first of all, like Fatal Attraction got nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actress, didn't get the Best Actor nomination, which is fine because yeah. Michael Douglas got nominated and won for Wall for Street. For Wall Street, so. yeah. All good. So I I think that this and uh, it's funny because a movie that this comes that this brings me back to is Gladiator. Um, really, a very well in the sense that it is a very popular, very well done popcorn movie that ends up getting like it gets the best picture nomination that you. It's like that's reserved for one movie like that. Yeah. The thing is, Gladiator. One, yeah, which I I did not agree with that decision, <laughs> yeah. But it, it's it's just funny. I always like that's why I miss the like just the, keeping it to five best picture nominees because like it, it wasn't just more exclusive. It was always fun. Like okay, what's gonna get that one spot? Like Ghost, like the yeah the, the Ghost spot, you know. So. But this got got all the you know nominations. I I don't think any wins. I know uh, the Last Emperor won Best Picture. Right. And like Bernardo Bertolucci uh, won Best Director. Um. So I think that also it needs to be mentioned. Like this is 1987, which is just like such a great year of movies. Uh, you know, oh, totally. a lot of more of, of the like popcorny movies. Uh, you know, certainly it had its heavy hitters for dramatic just stuff, but like quality popcorn but what a year just like what a year to go to the movies (laughs) quality movies i feel like like actors like just doing like i think of schwarzenegger in predator and the running man in this one year um i think he also had another one i think red heat was also you know it's just like such a i guess like 86 was just a really good year for production like 86 87 just like there must have been something going on where there was the money was flowing and they were just like cranking them out so so yeah so the the top ten box office of that year is uh, three men and a baby at number one, uh-huh. fatal attraction at number two, Beverly Hills Cop at number three, Beverly Hills Cop two at number three, yeah. Good Morning Vietnam, Moonstruck, The Untouchables, The Secret of My Success, Secret of My Success I, I didn't did that well, realize, huh? I didn't real I didn't think so like Stakeout. Uh-huh. Was the, the like eighth biggest uh, gross of the year? Lethal Weapon is is up there, of course. Uh, the Witches of Eastwick 
is is number 10. Now, granted, you have less releases in 1987, but still, uh, like, there's a lot. Uh-huh. Um, oh, oh, Cher won Best Actress that year. Deservedly and Best so. Supporting Actress. Yeah, it was Olympia Dukakis. Deservedly so as yeah. well. Moonstruck is okay. amazing. Yes. Yeah, I have not seen it in a long time. It's one I, I think I want oh to Oh, my God. It's one of my soon. favorite Nicolas Cage performances. Just. Ap- oh, yeah. It, it, but there's another actor, 1987, Raising Arizona, mm-hmm. Moonstruck. Man, yeah. Um, oh, Connery won Best Supporting Actor that year for The Untouchables. So, uh, so Dan, you know, we're talking about a lot yeah. of these like really fun movies. Uh, I I also watched it. I did some extra credit uh, for this one, and I watched oh. uh, Fatal Instinct, the uh, oh the Carl Reiner parody <laughs> film about the. I think that it's it I think that it's really three movies. It's Fatal Attraction, Basic Instinct, and, and then like Chinatown. Uh because it's like a more like noir kind of a vibe to it. Um Yeah. Yeah. And it is absolutely <laughs> bananas. You have just so many of the uh nods to the d- different scenes in uh Fatal Attraction. Um definitely a lot of like ice picking things from Basic Instinct. Um but yeah, you have like a pot of boiling water and all that kind of stuff and uh it's it's silly. I don't think there's anything really to talk about. Uh it's Armando Sante, uh right. <laughs> Sean Young, Carl, Carl Reiner. Carl Reiner directed Carl Reiner. it and um yeah. yeah, you know, it's there were there were most moments where I was watching it where I was just like, why am I still watching this? But then like something will happen where I'll be like, all right, that was pretty good. And, you know, right. uh, absolutely. It's like so dated um, that it's it's almost uh, uh, just kind of cringy. Sherilyn uh, Fenn is also in it who, and she was fantastic in it. Um Always mm-hmm. nice to see her. And uh yeah, it, it's it's silly. And and that was you know, that was one that was one option to do with it. And Dan, you know that they're they're bringing this to Paramount Plus. They are yeah. they are yeah. bringing it back um as a series with uh Joshua Jackson and Lizzie Kaplan. Right. And yeah. uh they are in the Dan and Alex roles respectively, and they have um it also features a yellow lab. They've they're they've got a dog in there too. I'm just looking at one of the photos from it. And um I'm so curious to see what they do with it. I'm trying to let's see if they say like who's involved. Yeah, that that I I couldn't tell that uh that I didn't see. Yeah. Uh oh, it also stars Amanda Pete as Beth. Um oh, Okay. Toby Huss is in it, who I love. Reno Wilson, Brian Goodman, oh, yeah. Alexandra Cunningham, who created the Bravo anthology series. Dirty John serves as the writer and showrunner. So I'm glad to see that it has a female showrunner. That gives me some mm-hmm. faith that they're going to make some changes that uh, maybe are a little bit more respectful yeah. to women. And yeah, um, yeah. you know, I'm I'm surprised yeah. they didn't do a full like you know, gender swap kind of a thing, but, uh, you know, well, or, or diversify the, or diversify the, right. the casting. But yeah. I, uh, I, I have full faith in anything that Lizzie Kaplan decides to do. So there must be something to it. Yeah. 
and also, if I may, before we, you, may. Uh, you know, before we wrap up on on Fatal Attraction, I almost said Fatal Instinct. It, I want to note just because we we did this as a theme uh, a while ago. I think fatal fatal attraction is one of those movies that became a phrase. It, it be like, yeah. oh, this is a a fatal attraction type thing, a fatal like attraction it, situation. Well, also like like boiling the bunny or like you know a bunny boiler. Bunny um, boiler became a thing in the UK, I believe. Okay, like an actual phrase. It sounds like a like a British thing. All right. I don't know why the dog is barking be, at me now. Don't they say it in the Banshees of Inisherin? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that oh, movie shit. famously takes place in a world where uh, where Fatal Attraction came out in the what what year did ben, well, Banshees come out? It's nineteen, I think nineteen like twenty two. Um, but yeah, no, because it's Fatal Attraction. Of course, is a old, you know it comes from an old uh, Celtic myth. Uh, old Celtic legend of, of from the Gallagher clan. <laughs> <laughs> so I. Uh, there oh my god what was i watching recently oh i was watching avatar the way of water and i was texting you about this I, oh, it was okay. about how oh. avatar the way what? avatar takes place yes. in a universe where the movie jerry Maguire exists because somebody right. says show me the money <laughs> and so it's so funny, like of all Jerry Maguire quotes to use, I'd feel like something like the human head weighs eight pounds would be absolutely it would fit yeah. better. But anyway, they put their uh, okay. they put their ponytails together, and it's like you complete me. <laughs> <laughs> That's the new like what what was it like? I see you. It was wasn't wasn't that what it was that the Navi said to each oh, other? I don't remember. Like I see you, or is it like see me, feel me, touch me, heal me. Yeah, right. That's Tommy. Uh, uh, no, I think it was okay. hold me, thrill me, kiss me, kill me. <laughs> Batman Forever uh, soundtrack. Bat, the Batman Forever soundtrack, forever classic. That is one of. I, I'm not a big U2 fan, but that that is one of the U2 songs I enjoy a bit more than others. <laughs> it's not bad. Also, because it reminds fun. me. It reminds me of like the release of that movie, which was like all the fanfare around that movie was, you know, potentially more fun than the movie itself. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I had that soundtrack. Do you have anything else? So, John, oh, wait, we have to talk about what we're going to do with this. <laughs> Absolutely. Thing. Yeah. Like, so, all right. So Paramount Plus is doing is is doing it. So what does that leave? For yeah. Us? You know, I'm and I'm I'm so intrigued by that one. Uh, I think that there's a. A lot that can be done with this. I think that it is important, though, that uh, that this that something is done with maybe the source material, uh, which is the a 1980 short film by the same writer James Dearden called Devotion, and in that one, it um, it doesn't have a lot of those elements that really made this movie have so many of the of the problems. I'm sure that. I, I don't want to kind of go into like the entire thing, but it essentially was like, you know, what happens when a family man has an affair and the the person that they have an affair with ends up being obsessive? And I think that if you just kind of take it down to its core, there's really something to mine there. I think that perhaps if there's a re-release of the short film, I don't know how it got around, how it was distributed or anything, but um, I think that there's, it's important, I think, to 
kind of resurface this original short film. And that's what got this movie off the ground. I mean, it uh, it was it was nurtured actually by um, and I need to pull up the the full I want to make sure that I get their names right. But uh, yeah, Sherry Lansing, who was one of the very uh-huh. like, f- you know, I think she was the first like head of production uh, who was a woman. And Mm -hmm. uh, she kind of got like kicked around really hard in Hollywood because, you know, she was getting taken advantage of left and right. And she is the one that just that really discovered this and uh, had worked together with uh, the producer Stanley Jaffe to really kind of turn this thing around. And and with Michael Douglas's help, they really made it start to start to take shape. But that's when the there there were all of these notes about having to change the uh, the script and really kind of change the character of Alex in order to fulfill studio requirements in order to get this made, and it ended up really um, and it was shooting Sherry Lansing in the foot because she had good intentions with bringing this short devotion into the into the mainstream as a feature and um maybe there's another chance to kind of go back to the to the source material and do something new with it yes um which i believe is is called diversion oh diversion yeah yeah diversion sorry i was going off of memory and not actually uh reading anything Either either makes sense, and and neither is Divergent, which is a dystopian teen. Uh, yeah, it's series. not that. So, <clears throat> all right. So, um, okay. What would you do with it? Uh, I would adapt it uh, into an opera. Oh, okay. I I feel like you know what it, it, it's interesting, and like I'm not a big I'm not a big opera person. Um, like you're not going to get me to a production of Madame Butterfly, like even if you're not crazy. Um, I in fact the only way you'd get me to a production uh, to an opera really is if you're my wife. But I feel like it is it's not not just the involvement of opera in it, but the themes the the drama it just feels operatic and it, it it seems like the character of alex would be a uh you know a great role for a you know in a, a diva in the you know i guess literal or original sense of the word a uh it it seems like it would it would work as as an opera so i think that's it's already been adapted as a stage play and I, it doesn't it, you know to adapt it as a musical seems to be like looking for camp and i don't, i don't know that you need that but an opera i i think would would suit it um, Dan, I just want to correct you on one thing. Um, you yes. know, you had said that the only person that could get you to go to an opera would be your wife, but I think that I could get you to go to an opera if there was an opera that Michael Shannon was in. Oh, I'm sorry. That was in the fine print. Yes, that's, yeah. Sorry. No, no, no. Opera's, if Timothy Oliphant was in an opera, you would be there opening night. Oh, oh, okay. Well, I mean, yes, okay. Fine. They're, these are game changers right there. 
if Michael Shannon is performing in an opera, but could, what if Michael Shannon played Dan Gallagher in the opera version of Fatal Attraction? I think he'd be eh, he's probably a little old for it at this point. Well, or if you like gender swapped it or something, and he well he I, could yeah. be the Fred Gwynn role. <laughs> I could see him being a good Fred Gwynn. Um, You'd have maybe to beat he's that back maybe up. he's Jimmy. Maybe he's the uh, the Stuart Pankin the Stuart Pankin character. Michael Michael Shannon is no one's second banana. Hey, who said that they have to be a second banana? Maybe they have a different role in this. Uh, oh, yeah. okay, yeah, I yeah no, uh, of course, Michael Shannon. God, yes. So so that's what I would do. Uh, yeah, that, that sounds cool. I, I it makes a lot of sense. I, and I also want to give a shout out to another piece of. Uh, of popular culture that has uh, very instrumentally utilized the opera Mad Butterfly, and that is season two of The White Lotus. Uh, Dan, I don't know if you're a White Lotus um, fan, but oh man, have not seen it. it, it I don't. I don't know. It, it sounds a bit intense for for me. Intense, really. Days. It's so is, funny is it, and strange, and I think you'd really oh, like is it. it is it like uncomfortable? No, I just know some like Mike White. Sometimes he's a genius. Stuff can be he's a genius. And uh, Dan, I think you just have to give it a try. I think that you could watch just season two, but I think that watching season one helps with season two, just because Jennifer Coolidge's character is a uh, as a recurring character between the seasons, and who does not right. love Jennifer Coolidge, who's been uh, at the time of this recording winning. You know, uh, Golden Globe Critics' Choice Award uh, for her role in The White Lotus, and uh, deservedly so. I have loved Jennifer Coolidge. I mean, yes, okay, Stifler's Mom in American Pie, but really, uh, Best in Best Show. Best in Show, she's amazing. Oh, uh, and then you, uh, just the Christopher Guest, especially Best in Show and Mighty, A Mighty Wind. Wind. She's so good. Also, I mean, I I also have to say, like, seeing when I saw her in, in Legally Blonde. She was great in Legally Blonde. And uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, we could go down the list. Jennifer Coolidge is wonderful, and it's about time everyone recognizes it. And I love that she's. I, I also love that all of this is happening. At, I mean, it's it it sucks that she had to wait so long for all this recognition, but it's great because I love that she's just embraced for her attitude and yeah like she doesn't like i haven't watched any of the speeches on the award shows or anything oh you should but she just she just seems to be coming straight from the heart on everything and i feel like it's a it's something that in, earlier in your career one might not feel is safe doing and I, she's just so wonderful, watch so. watch her speeches yes. watch brendan fraser's speech from the critics choice award Watch Kihai Kwan's uh, speeches. Does he yell cowards at the Golden Globes board? Uh, yeah, right. He just stands outside would, in the rain. I, that would have been great if during the Globes they just yeah, cut right. to Brendan, Brendan uh, outside. No, it's it's really fantastic. I feel like this is the only uh, award season where there's been so much reminiscence about two actors who uh, were in Encino Man who disappeared and then are having a resurgence. <laughs> And it's beautiful. <laughs> it's absolutely beautiful. You have to love I, it. Yes, yes. Well, and as I've discussed before, I was a big fan of uh, everything, everywhere, all the time. All at once. And all at once. Yeah. Yes. Uh, sorry. It's a, it, There's a Radiohead song that has lyrics mm. that are very similar. So, um, 
well, a big fan of that movie, big fan of the performance. Yeah, and and so. clearly we're all big fans additionally of uh Brendan Fraser and um just have to say we're just so happy for Brendan Fraser. And you can go buy our I'm just so happy for Brendan Fraser shirt on our T Public store. Our link is on our link tree in the show's description. Uh we also yes. have a uh another uh, new item on there. Uh, for you to check out and we in uh, it's a very specific one um but uh we also have some really uh, a lot of other fun stuff there as well uh and we really love to hear from you so email us ruinedchildhoodspod at gmail.com follow us on instagram ruinedchildhoodspod and um yeah uh, dan i uh, i am so excited about our next movie and i actually said the name of this movie Earlier in this episode, which was something that we tried doing uh, as like a let's see if you can figure out what it's going to be kind of a thing by mentioning it a few times. But I did it by accident and I caught myself and I was like, oh, wow, that happened. But it, and it, it actually it did fit into the context of what we it's were talking about. The um, movie Yellow Lab. Oh, we're not doing Yellow no. Lab next time? Oh, what wait is a it, second. Oh, oh, okay. Oh, man. Get ready for this, folks. It's time. We're going to talk about The Burbs, 1989, Joe another wonderful Mother movie Mother Flippin' Dante. Joe Dante, uh, who's uh, also got a wonderful podcast, uh, The Movies That Made Me. And uh, we've got Tom Hanks. We've got uh, Bruce, Bruce Dern. Dern. Uh, Bob Odenkirk, Corey Feldman, Carrie Fisher, not Bob Odenkirk. Um, oh, Rick Dukeman, sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, Corey Feldman, uh, Carrie yeah. Fisher. It's uh, a really, a really great cast. There's so many things I could say about it right now, but I'm gonna, but I'm gonna hold off. Ah. But uh, yes, you know, Dan, as uh, you are following somebody out to the burbs of New York, I wish you a good journey. Good journey. <laughs> <laughs>